Thank you for being here to worship. Thank you to these men who have led us in worship this morning so well. And I appreciate the thoughts that they brought and the songs that Kyle led. And uh, we were able to together here today to talk about some things that are very important. That's true every Sunday as we think about things of eternal import. And uh, what an honor it is to be. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. And we do hope that you're blessed by your time here. If you're seeking to know more about Jesus, we are we're a group of imperfect people. And, but we, uh, we're following a perfect Savior. And we'd love to sit down with you and just talk to you about what He's done for us and what He wants to do for you. And so if we have that opportunity, if you'd give us that opportunity, we would, we would love to see, see me or Kyle or one of us. And we would be thrilled, absolutely thrilled to be able to talk to you about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know, I was thinking when this was Bill, he mentioned a moment ago the decree from Luke 2 about Caesar Augustus, that decree that went out about the taxation. And, you know, I think I thought about it this week in, in preparation for this lesson, but uh, I just think this is important to think about. And that decree went out from Caesar Augustus uh, about the taxation, and that's how Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Not somewhere else, you know. They, they went back there because of the tax. But Caesar Augustus, I mean, Rome was so powerful at the time of Jesus' birth. Um, Julius Caesar, you know, 60 years or so before. Now you've got Caesar Augustus. You're, Tiberius is going to be reigning a few years after this. You're going to have Nero and Domitian and, and, and on and on. I mean, Rome is, is, is strong. Rome is powerful the year Jesus was born. And that decree that went out from Caesar Augustus, I mean, when a, when a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, you did what Caesar said. Because that was Rome speaking. You know, that was, that was Rome giving this edict that you need to go to this place of your birth and all that and, and, and for, the, for the census and the taxation and all that. When Rome spoke, people listened. Who in the world, though, who in the world had any idea that the big deal that year would not be some edict that was issued by Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world. That the biggest thing going on in the world, the thing that would change the course of history, was taking place in a manger. Who had any idea? I mean, Rome was the epicenter of political power. It was the, the place around which all military might center, you know? I mean, Rome was it in the ancient world at that time. Rome was it, but who, who had any idea that the big deal that year would be a young lady, probably a teenager, and her young husband, who gave birth to a little boy. A peasant family, a peasant family, they had nothing. And nothing. And yet the big deal that year would be what took place in that manger amidst the sight and the smell and the sounds of a manger. Who knew? And so I'm thankful that we get to think about this and think about the implications of this. Uh, Matthew's version of the birth narrative is fascinating. Luke gives the most details, and we've looked at Luke's in the past, but I want to look at Matthew's today. And really what we're going to do is key in on that one, that one 
sentence in this story, Matthew 1, about Emmanuel, God, God with us. And we already read this text. I mean, this is a familiar text. You've, you've probably heard more about it than uh, many other texts, you know, because we think about it. Many, many people, we, we read about it, and it comes to the forefront of our mind at this time of year. But it's a familiar story. And there, there are dangerous things about familiar stories. You know, things that we've heard a bunch of times and we've seen them displayed and we've, we've heard the story so many times. The dangerous thing about that is it, it can become somewhat meaningless. It can become a cliche. It's just another story that we've heard many, many times. I want us to dive in a bit this morning and think about one particular expression as Matthew tells the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. He sets us up, you know, he talks about a little bit about Mary and Joseph and those Scholars think that Matthew's account of this is told from Joseph's perspective, whereas you, Joseph's perspective is as opposed to Luke, who tells us more from Mary's perspective. But here you do have an emphasis on Joseph and what he's thinking, what he's going through. It tells, Matthew sets it up in verse 18 when he says it took place like this. This is how it happened. The most important event that ever happened because it led to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's important in the sense that it sets the stage for who Jesus was and what he would later do, of course culminating in that pivotal event in Jerusalem a few years later. But he sets it up and he says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. We don't have a lot of details that we might like, but we do know that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. And, and you've heard this before, no doubt, but in the first century world, a betrothal, this kind of relationship was binding. It, it wasn't a marriage in the sense that the husband and wife would come together and consummate the marriage. They wouldn't be together in a physical sense. They would live separately during this period of time which would last a year or so, this, this uh, time of betrothal. But what during this time, if, if the relationship was to end in any way, then it would have to be ended by writing of divorce papers. I mean, and that's why the text speaks the way it does. They're in a time we would call it an engagement period, but it's stronger than our modern day engagement period. So they're, they're during that time where they are betrothed to one another. And she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, verse 19, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What the law said is that if a young lady was found to be guilty of fornication, of adultery, of violating her relationship with Joseph, then she would be put to death according to the law. There's no evidence that the Jewish people were practicing that kind of law at this time because Rome had taken it away from them. But what would have been... Very common at this time would have been for Joseph to have shamed her in a public way. Because he suspected she had been unfaithful to him. That would have been the logical conclusion, right? He suspected she had been unfaithful to him. And so it would have been customary for him to have taken her in front of the community and for her to have been shamed and ostracized and for the rest of her life to have been spent in isolation from the community because of the sin that she had committed. Joseph isn't going to do that. Joseph isn't going to take that step. He's giving us an indication as to what kind of family Jesus was born into. Joseph was a just man. He was a good man. He was going to divorce her. But he was going to do so in a way that would try to lessen the shame on his young fiance. Of course, God came to Joseph and told him what had happened. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here's where I want us to spend a little time this morning is in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. This is, this is Isaiah 7, 14, a quotation, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so what, what we've got here is this, this, as the story progresses and as Joseph understands what's going on, Matthew gives this little aside in verses 22 and 23. He said, this happened like this. This is the way God planned it so that Isaiah 7, 14 would be fulfilled in an ultimate sense. And he goes back and he quotes that text, Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son who called his name Emmanuel. And then he interprets it for his audience that did not speak this language. He says that word Emmanuel means God with us. Now, think with me for a minute. I want us to reflect on this a bit because this word has two very important components. All right. Emmanuel. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The first component of this word, Emmanuel, is at the end of it. See that word? You often see this with Hebrew or Aramaic words at at the beginning or the end, they'll often have the word El. El is the word for God. That's the general word for God. It's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Um, and Elohim. You've, you've heard some of these words, or, the, or just the word El. It means God. And then that's what I want to focus on just for a second. We'll talk about the first part of that in a minute. But, but God, He will be called Emmanuel. He will be called Emmanuel. He is God. You've heard the story many times. Sunday morning audience, you know, I know, I know you guys have heard the story and you probably have convictions about who this is, but it's impossible for us in our, in our present climate to understand the kind of shock this would have been for them to have been talking about a child, the birth of a child who's going to be in some sense God. What? They didn't have categories for this sort of thing. And theologians have been wrestling with this what we call, you know, what people call the incarnation. We've been wrestling with this for 2,000 years. What does this mean for God to become a person? What does that mean? Of course, we've got the Old Testament that hints at it. And Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He calls him Emmanuel. That in, in that day, in Isaiah's day, that was 700 years before Christ. Okay, 700 years. But, but Isaiah didn't fully understand what that meant. Neither did Isaiah's hearers. They didn't understand what that meant. In fact, probably it had an immediate fulfillment in this day and time. It could have referred to Hezekiah. It could have referred to someone else in Isaiah. But it has some sort of fulfillment in that day and time. The, the virgin. Uh, there's going to be some sort of miraculous birth in, in Isaiah's day. That is a sign for something to come. And you look at that in Isaiah. And it's tumultuous times for God's people. And they needed encouragement, encouraging sign from God that things are going to be okay. I think that's what, what it meant back in Isaiah. Initially. That's what it meant to his hearers. And of course, Isaiah and others might have read into that and heard something else, heard a, a hint of something bigger than Hezekiah, some other immediate fulfillment. They heard in their minds something beyond that, I think. Especially, Glenn referred to this, or Bill did, Isaiah 9. I love this text, Isaiah 9. This is a familiar one. 
Two chapters after the one that Matthew quotes, right? Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. See, Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then you got two chapters later, you've got another hint here that Isaiah is talking about something more than just his present day, that he's looking ahead to some sort of Messiah figure, some sort of God-like figure, which permeates the book of Isaiah. Suffering servant, led as a lamb in the slaughter. That's Isaiah 53. It's all over Isaiah. Someone is coming. A virgin will conceive, Isaiah 7. Unto us a son is born. Unto us a child is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. He shall be called. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, in Isaiah's time, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. Isaiah 9, He'll be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then Isaiah 53, there's going to be some figure who will come and he will be led as a, as a sheep to the slaughter. And he will open not his mouth. Isaiah's talking about someone more than just in his day. And here in Matthew, Matthew says, I'm here to tell you, folks, what Isaiah was talking about is about to happen. That that virgin is Mary, and that child is Jesus, and we will call His name Emmanuel because He is the El. He is the God with us. And that's the first part of that word, Emmanuel. He is El with us. He is God with us. I mean, we, we, per, we understand perfectly what those two concepts mean. Isolated from the other, right? We know what it means to be God. I mean, not in any sort of experiential sense, but we have this concept of God that we grasp on some sort of finite level. We understand God, what that means at least. And we understand what it means to be human. We understand that a whole lot better than we do understand the other, don't we? We understand very well what it means to be human. We've been there. Been there for a while. What does it mean in the context of Emmanuel, though, in the world? They didn't have a category for this. They, they didn't have a category for God and man, God and humanity being united. They didn't have that kind of thought. There are hints of it. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He'll be called mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He'll be the suffering servant. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, Isaiah 53. I mean, we got, we got all these hints at it, but when Matthew comes along and says, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy, he will be called God with us, they did not fully understand what that meant. And we reflect on that and we wrestle with it. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful idea that God is with us. What Matthew meant in his interpretation of Isaiah is that this baby, that the virgin will conceive has already conceived at that point, will give birth to is God with us. God as a little, as a little baby who will grow up to be a man. That, 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 that concept is, is remarkable. I like the way John puts it, John's prologue in John 1, 1 through 18, which is a story of Jesus from a completely different vantage point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. 
The Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And He created everything. And Him was the life, the light of men. And John goes on through this beautiful prologue of his gospel account. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then skip down to verse 14. And the Word was made what? Flesh. The Word was God. And the Word was made flesh. God became flesh. Can you put your mind around that? How in the world can you take God and wrap Him in human flesh? How does that happen? Emmanuel. We still don't understand it fully. I guess we never will. The Word became flesh. The next part of this, the next part of that verse, John 1, 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But that part, the Word was made flesh and dwelled among us, literally, you may have a footnote in your Bible that says this, literally that word dwell means, it's the same word as tabernacle. Tabernacle among us. And I love that idea because we talked about this two or three weeks ago. If you were here about God wanting to be with us, God wants to be in our presence. He was with us in, in a real sense in, in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. Walked and talked and had this relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden. But then because of sin, we've been separated from God. But God has been coming to be in our presence in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Living, dwelling in some sort of sense in the tabernacle, in the temple. But now, what has happened? Jesus says, I'll tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. You know what he's saying? God is dwelling among you, not as a tabernacle or a temple with, with walls of stone or gold or bronze. But rather, God is tabernacling among you in human flesh. That is God with us. That's what the incarnation means. I say that's what it means. Do you understand what it means? I don't think I do. But maybe with our finite limitations and with the limitations of language and thought, we're dancing around the edges of something incredible. Emmanuel, God, Elohim, Yahweh, God with us. God with us. The implications of that are absolutely mind-boggling. When we think about Emmanuel, think about some implications of this. The baby in the manger was God. I've already talked about this a little bit. The baby in the manger was, was God. This idea of God coming to take on human flesh is remarkable. John's Gospel probably talks about this more so, at least explicitly so, than the others. I mentioned John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Throughout John's Gospel accounts, you've got the Jesus making these statements about His nature, His identity, in that dialogue, conversation, argument that He had with some of the religious leaders of his day in John 8, and they're, you know, Jesus makes a statement about Abraham, and they say, you're not even 50 years old. You seen Abraham? Love his response. Seen him? Now this, is, this is essentially what Jesus said. Have I seen him? Yeah, I, I've been around for a while. 
Before Abraham was, remember what he said? Before Abraham was, I am. I am. I am. Those statements are all over the Gospel of John. See, when we're talking about the birth of Jesus, we talk about the nativity, we talk about Bethlehem, we talk about the Virgin Mary, we sing these songs about the birth of Jesus. We need to understand what we're talking about. We're talking about something more than a cute story. We're, we're talking about something more than it's just this, you know, this romanticized, kind of sanitized version of a nativity scene that we sometimes see, you know, this time of year. We're talking about, we're talking about something beautiful, but we're talking about something absolutely incredible. We're, we're, we're talking about the great I am. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And then, you know, sprinkled throughout the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12, and John 9, 5. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the door of the, sh of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd in John 10. Revelation sums it up for us. I am the Alpha and the Omega. If you went to the manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, whatever time of the year Jesus was born, if you went there on the day He was born and you looked into the manger and you saw this helpless little baby, you would have been looking into the eyes of God. I can't really grasp that. But I keep getting the sense that we're talking about something that's a pretty big deal. The baby in the manger was God. It was God. And God was the baby in the manger. You ever wondered why God chose to come to earth like this? There's a lot of emphasis, by the way. I hope you've thought about that, but there's a lot of emphasis in the Bible about the birth of Jesus. You've got, you got more about the birth of Jesus if you're just counting words. I mean, you count Luke's narrative and John's and Matthew. Mark doesn't, Mark doesn't have much about it, but the other three have quite a bit about it. You've got, you've got a ton of material about the birth of Jesus. It's important for us to know and to think about and to talk about the birth of Jesus. You know, it's all over the place. You ever wondered why? Why is it like this? Couldn't God have just, I don't know, part of the skies and what's a light and descend down? Here's a, I don't know. Why? Why? Why like this? Why like this? Why in a manger? Why to Mary and Joseph, peasants? They had nothing. We know that because of the sacrifice they offered after the birth of Jesus. The, the old law prescribed certain kinds of sacrifices. And if you couldn't offer the, the sacrifice that the law said, then you could offer the, the two birds. If you're so poor that you can't even offer a sacrifice, you offer the one Mary and Joseph offered. That, we know the kind of family. They were a good family. Apparently of high morals. Committed believers in God. Dirt poor. Got nothing. Why them? Why birth? I don't want to be crass, but birth is ugly in some ways. Oh, it's beautiful. It's amazing and wonderful, but why birth? Why come into the world like that? This is God we're talking about. We're gonna, is God going to humble himself and come into the world in that kind of way? 
And I think that's probably the very point of it, don't you think? The baby in the manger was God, but, but God was a baby in a manger. I don't know exactly what it was like. I, you know, you read different things. And there's a barnyard. There's Mary giving birth next to a stall with donkeys in it. I don't, I don't know exactly. We don't, we don't know if it was in a... a you know, I read something this week that suggested probably was in a cave, you know. We, we just don't know exactly what it was like. But we do know this. Jesus was born in humble, humble circumstances. God was a baby in a manger. And you think about what that means. That Jesus was born and he was a baby like every other baby. A baby like every other baby. You've been around babies when you're born? Is there anything more helpless than a newborn baby? I'm there. You, you, you know, you look at the animal world and, and, and by necessity, and God designed it this way, but, but babies that are born to animals, they're not perfectly self-sufficient when they're, when they're born, but they're a whole lot more sufficient than human babies are. You know what? Because they're born, they're born with the ability to usually to the ability to run, the ability to, in some way, defend themselves. Human babies are born absolutely helpless. And that was Jesus. You imagine a young mom, like every mom, taking him into her arms, and nursing him, changing him, burping him. God was a baby in the manger. The text, Philippians 2. He considered equality with God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of man. I just something there's something incredible about that. And you know what I think it is? You know why I think this is such a big deal? And I answered kind of answering the question I mentioned a second ago. Why did God choose to do it this way? Because God was going to become a human being and He was going to go through the stuff that you and I go through and He wasn't going to skip the ugly parts. And He wasn't going to skip the parts that people would like to skip. He's not going to skip the difficulties of humanity. And so when He gets to the end of His life and He goes to the cross and He's hung there, He's going to hang there as someone who knows what it's like to be a human being. And he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without what? He went through it all. He went through it all. He took upon him not just part of humanity, but the experience of humanity from birth all the way on. Why did he come into the, into the world as a, as a little helpless baby? Because he was going to experience it all, the beautiful and the ugly. So that you and I can now look back to that story and we can recognize that God knows what it's like to be a human being. And He knows what it's like to struggle. And so the story of the Gospels, you know, they tell us about Jesus crying. They tell us about His sweating. They tell us about His getting tired. About His getting discouraged. About His being abandoned by His friends. About Him being disappointed. The experience of humanity for Jesus was not anesthetized. He went through it. He went through it. 
so that he could identify with us. And really that's ultimately, you know, that's ultimately where we go with the story of the birth of Jesus. John's Gospel focuses in on this idea that, you know, this baby in the manger is God. God was a helpless baby, but, but also the with us idea that John tells us about in John 14. And John's having this conversation with the disciples. He says, I'm leaving you. And they're upset, sad, and all this stuff. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm leaving you, but I will always be with you. I don't think I, I never noticed this until this week, but Matthew's gospel account starts with Emmanuel chapter 1, God with us, and it ends with this statement. Matthew 28, very end of the letter, of the, of the book. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Behold, tells them to go into all the world, right? But behold, I am, you remember this? What does he say? Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. He starts with Jesus being with us in a manger. And he ends his gospel with Jesus being with us through the Holy Spirit. And he remains with us to this day. He is still our Emmanuel. John 14 talks about this. I'm leaving you, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit that I may be with you always. That's the language of John 14. So today, from our vantage point, we stand here the Christmas time of year. Maybe we'll think tomorrow about the birth of Jesus. Let's do so in a way that so that our hearts are filled with gratitude. So that we are overwhelmed by what the incarnation means. So that we understand that God with us is something that is absolutely remarkable. It's not a story you, you put back in the cabinet with your Christmas decorations later this week or next week. It's, it's not something you just you fold away and we'll, we'll put this away and we'll talk about it next December. You can't do that with the birth of Jesus. It can't work like that. This is too big of a deal for God to become a man. Is the most remarkable thing that the world has ever seen. God with us. God help us to live that out every day. The God with us, the God who was born in the manger in Bethlehem, as we talked about a few minutes ago, is the God who went to the cross. The God who submitted himself to the worst that wicked people could do. He submitted himself to their whims and to their wishes. And they nailed him to the cross where he hung for six hours. He was resurrected from the tomb on Sunday. That is God with us at the cross. And He is God with us with the Spirit in His church even to this day. And aren't you thankful? Aren't you incredibly thankful for the gift we have as Christians? If you're not, if you're not a Christian, I said this earlier, but I'll say it again as we conclude. If you're not a Christian today, but maybe you're seeking Him out, let us talk to you about Jesus Christ. Let us tell you more about the whole story of who He is, what He did, and how He comes to us today. We'd love to sit down with you and talk to you. If you're ready to become a Christian today, we're here for you. We would love to baptize you into Him for the forgiveness of all of your sins as you identify with Him as your Lord and as your Savior. And what a beautiful thing that would be. If you're ready to do that, then we're ready to baptize you based on your confession of Him, your trust in Him, your turning away from your sins and penitence and identifying with Him as your God and as your Lord. Let us help you however we can. If you need to come back to Him today, we invite you to come Let's stand and sing this song.